Welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. This week, Erica D. Smith, columnist for the Los Angeles Times and one of our most astute observers of California society, culture, politics, policy, and everything in between. Just a great reporter, a great columnist, and uh, a great guest. It was awesome to talk to Erica, and I really look forward to bringing you her insights in this episode. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, Let's just have a a quick vibe check. How are you doing? Are you all right? Because, you know, we're kind of headed into the fall. Um, Obviously, you know, as the calendar goes, we are absolutely well into the fall season. But as the temperatures start to drop and we start to see the leaves fall and the sky get a little bit overcast. Sometimes people kind of lapse into seasonal effectiveness disorder. I just want to make sure y'all are doing okay. For me, it's kind of the other way around. I get really excited when the fall shows up. I get really excited when I get to, uh, you know, wear layers. That is the best thing in the world for me. Some of you may hear that and uh, promptly unsubscribe from the podcast or call the police. Uh, I understand in either case. Really, as a Californian, it is... Um, the best thing in the world to just know that uh, we have at least two seasons, right? At least two. And I'm really excited to get some precipitation, uh, as I hope you would be as well. It looks like we're going to get one of those atmospheric rivers, uh, Rio Atmospherico, Bienvenidos. That would be awesome. Uh, Perhaps you're listening to this episode with the soothing sound of rainfall in the background. Ah. Anyway, yeah. I guess, you know, get prepared for some uh, fall weather, get prepared for, I guess, the holiday shopping season, because all of those ships that are anchored off the coast of Long Beach are not quite getting to shore anytime soon. And so all of those really cool gift ideas you had in mind for your significant other, your kids, your dog, your turtle, uh, your boss, your workmates, whomever, Um, Those are probably going to be about 15 to 20 miles off the coast when you really need them. So unless you have a boat and the, uh, you know, vacation time to go out there and bring those uh, Barbie containers onto your skiff to Long Beach, uh, it might be time to figure out how to knit a sweater, I guess, do something a little more uh, handmade, Whatever it takes to ensure that the spirits of the season are fulfilled. Californians are nothing if not flinty and industrious, so send your best gift-giving ideas to hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Perhaps we'll get a gift guide together, Um, maybe a local statewide gift guide. The best of the best from Modoc County up north all the way down to San Diego County. We will overcome. Stay dry. All right, so Erica D. Smith of the Los Angeles Times is our guest today, and I have been wanting to talk to Erica for a very long time. I have been reading her work for years since she was at the Sacramento Bee. Erica moved to the Los Angeles Times in 2018, and since then she has covered with great authority everything from housing and homelessness in Southern California and the crisis there to how the northernmost areas of the state have handled COVID and the coronavirus crisis. Erica is really one of our most empathetic and compassionate and curious and incredibly smart and well-informed writers working today in California. 
she brings a perspective on the state that we don't see from a lot of opinion work because she actually gets out there and she talks to people. She's not sitting at a desk somewhere pontificating about the latest Twitter feud or kind of in the abstract about what's happening at the state capitol or on Skid Row or among any of the hundreds of elected bodies that we have in this state. She's actually talking to elected officials. She's talking to sheriffs in the North State. She's talking to housing activists in Southern California. She's talking to elected leaders in Sacramento. She is really doing the work. She's making those connections. And that's to our benefit as readers and as an audience and as Californians. We can learn a lot about this state from what Erica D. Smith sees and brings to us in her work. And she's a treasure and it was a thrill and really an honor to be able to invite her to the show, talk to her for a little bit and share her perspective with you. If you have any comments about this episode, I would love to hear them. You can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You can follow and DM me on Twitter at whatcalifornia. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you following. I would love to hear from you. And until then, here's me with Erica D. Smith on What is California. Enjoy. Erica D. Smith, welcome to What is California. It's so great to have you here. I've been a reader of yours for a very long time since you were at the Sacramento Bee, but if I understand correctly, you're not actually from California originally, right? No, I'm not. I'm actually from the Midwest. I'm actually from Cleveland, Ohio, a little suburb outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And But when I, before I moved to Sacramento, I lived uh, in Indianapolis, which was kind of where I've spent the bulk of my career um, working at the Indianapolis Star. In your Twitter bio, you mentioned proud Californian by choice. What is a proud Californian by choice? I'm trying to think when I updated my Twitter bio. It might have been at some point in Sacramento, maybe when I moved to L.A. But, you know, the Midwest is full of people who are either trying to escape or, you know, defiantly Midwestern. And I, I kind of wanted to escape. And I've always wanted to move west. I think the first time I visited the West Coast um, was a teenager and I just immediately felt at home. And so... The idea of being able to choose to live out here and stay out here um, is something that's very important to me. It's as important as my Midwestern roots, too. I don't want to, I guess I'm at that point in my life in my 40s where I want to both honor my past and also be aware of where I am and what that is for my future. And I, you know, love both both parts of this country equally. I have my beefs with both parts of the country, both Ohio and California equally. But I really do love this state and I love, um, you know, being a part of it in the change and just helping it grow and evolve and just being a witness to it. So I, I think that's what I mean by by proud. I really do love living in California. When you visited here when you were a teenager, was that your first visit to California then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was. I'm trying to remember the first. They kind of blurred together because I've come, come in different locations. But it was interesting. I never really went to Northern California before moving to Sacramento. But most of my trips um, as a teenager and into my 20s were in uh, LA or Southern California. Um, not because I necessarily knew anybody out here, but it was just, you know, family trips and, and road trips, uh, driving, you know, after driving into Phoenix or just knowing different people. And so, um, you know, in Southern California is a very different experience than any place else in Northern California is something that I've learned obviously since living here. I was just struck by, I guess, probably the same thing most Midwesterners are who are in landlocked States or mostly landlocked States is just, you know, the access to the ocean, the warm weather, the trees, the people, uh, the diversity um, was a big one for me. Um, and just kind of the ease of seemingly ease of life. Um, of course, everything's far more complicated, but 
it was something that definitely made an impression on me. Um, in the Midwest, I think people are a lot more just kind of, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, you get what you get and it's not quite as diverse and people are just kind of plain spoken. It's what I've always known. And so I think I've always wanted something different for my life. Um, and California, in my brain, represented the most different thing I could have, I think, as a teenager into my 20s. Do you remember a particular moment or encounter that you had on that first visit that has really stuck with you at all over the years that kind of gave you that feeling about California and the people and kind of just the environment? I think people in general, I think just seeing the the massive people that weren't, you know, that of were all colors and all hues. I remember that probably walking around. It wouldn't have been somewhere on the West. Side. I was probably somewhere in mid city. I think at the time, if I had to, to place it now, I have some sense of in L.A., um, but I think the thing that honestly made such an impression on me is when I, a time I'd driven in from Las Vegas, actually with my mother, we were driving in and seeing kind of coming over the mountains and coming into like the valley and seeing, the, you know, the ocean and seeing these and also just seeing the temperatures change from, you know, like a 20 degree shift. I mean, anybody who grows up in the Midwest knows that the weather is just the weather. I was actually joking with some friends of mine that like if you're in the Midwest, if you if you want the weather to change, you just have to wait and it, it'll change in you know hours or days or whatever. But if you're in California and you want the weather to change, you just drive out of it. And I, I like the idea of the active, you know, being able to be like at any given moment, if I want to see snow or if I want to see the ocean or whatever, that I could do that. And it sounds probably very trivial to most Californians who grew up and are used to that. But I think it represents this idea of this freedom and this choice. And so I think that one of the things that really stuck with me is seeing that in that journey, seeing from the desert, you know, literally to the sea and understanding and, and over the mountains, you know, and seeing that, that change in that shift of environment that just doesn't happen in large parts of this country. And it's just because of the, the land, the, you know, the ecology and the landscape. So um, I think that's one of the things that particularly stuck to me. And the other thing was, again, seeing and understanding so many different cultures that I had never encountered at that point in my life. And, you know, just, the curiosity factor about, you know, how they could all live in a city this massive and get along and then not get along. And how did that work? And, you know, all of these, all of these questions that had never occurred to me before that I wanted to understand the answers to. And like a good journalist, I, you know, started asking questions, <laughs> you know, as throughout my career. And so I think I just ended up here just out of a lot of ways out of sheer curiosity. Do you have an enduring or significant specific memory of California uh, since you've moved here that really sticks with you that kind of maybe has informed you or inspired you at all to do what you do? Well, that's interesting. Because um, now I understand California when people people ask me, how do you like living in California? That's like saying, how do you like living in the Eastern seaboard? <laughs> it's kind of, I think one thing in the, this happened after George Floyd, I think, and which of course there were protests all over the country during what was going to be, well, I guess it was Pride Month, but what was going to be, you know, the Pride Parade kind of turned, kind of evolved into this combo march of, you know, LGBT activists and, you know, Black activists. And just seeing that kind of melding of people together on the street um, where, you know, I am both queer and Black. And I know, you know, intuitively just that there are these tensions between these two communities and have been for a very long time. And I think seeing those communities come together for a common cause, even if it was going to be temporary or not temporary, you know, at that moment, I was well aware of that, but just seeing that and seeing all of the diversity on display 
in LA County. I mean, in LA, it was just, or actually technically West Hollywood, but I mean, it was just kind of amazing to see. Um, and it was like the embodiment of all of, all of the identities, all of the diversity, all of the inclusion, you know, in that moment. And that was a little bit overwhelming. It was great. I mean, but it was something that I didn't, I would have never predicted that I would have experienced when I moved out here in 2015. One of the things that I've always really liked about living in coastal California or the more diverse parts of California is that, you know, while people can still be very segregated, and that's definitely the case in Los Angeles County, there is something about having people sharing the same space that forces conversations that don't happen in other parts of the country. Um, and specifically, I, I'm, I'm thinking about where I lived previously, which was in Indianapolis, Indiana, and which is extremely, you know, white and black, and it has a, a you know, a growing Latino population, but it's not, you know, this massive force that it is in California. And, and so a lot of conversations just don't happen. Um, because they don't have to happen because the power structure is the power structure. And there's not a lot of forces at work that prompt people to have to have these conversations about sharing power. Um, and that's not really the case in LA. And I think, and for that reason, people, things move faster. Um, the conversations happen faster because there's an urgency behind them. And so I think for me, when I see these bridges being built that in some cases were unexpected or expected, I, I tend, I think I just tend to pay attention to them because I've spent the majority of my life in places where those conversations don't happen or they don't happen in a timely manner or they don't um, or very little come of the conversations. They kind of end up just being like, you know, theater or for show. And so it's nice to live in a place where, granted, it's not perfect and there's still lots of things that are wrong, but it's, you know, it's nice to see those bridges being built. Um, and this these past few years have created lots of opportunities for those types of bridges to be built, but also for lots of divisions um, just to kind of be shown as far as how deep those divisions are. So I think that's why I write a lot about, about those things. Sometimes there is this kind of almost subliminal impact that geography has on Californians. Um, sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's very obvious, very, you know, very clear. Other, other times people just recognize, oh, I've been living in this valley for 30 years and, um, you know, I didn't really think about that until now. In what ways, if any, has California's geography influenced or impacted you or who you are, especially since you've moved from the Midwest? No, it's interesting. I think, you know, I, coming out here, I didn't really, I mean, I had expectations, but I also didn't have expectations. I think in some ways, if I had moved straight from the Midwest to LA, I would have probably come with more expectations than I did if I, since I moved from, you know, the Midwest to Sacramento, which I had no real concept of. Um, and so I think learning Northern California first was really important to me in terms of geography. Um, you know, the Central Valley and how Sacramento is at this kind of weird spot where it's part of the Central Valley, but it's also now kind of, you know, Bay Area adjacent, you know, because of housing prices and people moving in. And so this it's kind of at this interesting nexus where it's trying to figure out, you know, what's its proper, like, what's it's going to be its role for the next century? And what, you know, who, who's it going to be, basically, is it going to be Modesto? Or is it going to be Oakland or something like something like that? Um, and so I think the idea of geography in terms of like, beliefs and, you know, and culture and values, I think that that's really interesting being in Sacramento, particularly, because in Sacramento, you know, it's kind of where the state gathers because it's the state capital. And so you see all of these different values from different parts of this, the state and people and bringing their ideas. And so you kind of get a mix and a sense of those, 
you know, for me, one of the things that was very striking, again, growing up in flat as a pancake Midwest was the Sierra and going up to, you know, Tahoe and some of the, you know, all these areas around there and understanding, you know, how people live in those particular areas and seeing the, you know, the vacationers from the Bay Area, but like, you know, not sort of versus the locals, but kind of in some ways versus the locals and seeing this clash of values, particularly as more people, particularly now post pandemic are moving into that area and what that looks like. I've had some chances to go up into the far, far north, far north of the state um, and talk to people there, which is also an interesting experience. And for me, understanding a lot of what rural communities share in common, no matter where they are in this country. Um, I went to a college in Ohio University, which is in basically in Appalachia. And, you know, some of the conversations I had 20 years ago in those college towns felt a lot like some of the conversations I had in Altura is up in Modoc County not too long ago. So it's kind of interesting to see like the, the, the parallels. Um, and then just now just understanding Southern California in the, you know, massive population and how that affects what people think and what they don't think. And so I think there's, I do think there's a lot of like geography tied to people's values and interests. And I've, I've enjoyed exploring different parts of the state and getting to know people who I very much identify from where they're from and care a lot about it for various different reasons. And, and oftentimes feel like other people in other parts of the state don't understand where they live and what they do um, and what their life is like, which is probably true. But I think it's interesting to hear that same statement repeated again and again from so many people from, from different parts of the state. How do you identify a story that you want to report or a region that you want to visit or people you want to talk to, a community that you want to amplify? I have a lot of ideas for, for lots of different things, some of which don't actually make it into a column. It's more like I, I'm a person that comes up with like, you know, 20 ideas a day, but actually ends up maybe pursuing like two of them because like I forget the first 10 of the day. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's also been interesting trying to write this column, at least at the beginning of it during the lockdown, particularly in L.A. County and and also during all of the aftermath of George Floyd and, and you know, the election. Um, and so for a long time, I've kind of felt like the news has been driving what I've been writing as opposed to me choosing parts of the news that I want to write. It's, it's kind of, it, well, I mean, I, I was choosing it, but I felt like there's so much news and the news cycle was so fast that it was kind of hard to keep up. So I felt like a lot of 2020 was kind of like drinking out of a fire hose. This year, I feel a little bit, you know, things are still happening, but I feel like I can kind of choose a little bit more. And so I've kind of leaned on the things and the themes that I particularly care about and kind of like looked throughout the state to see if ways that I can connect the dots, so to speak. So, you know, I write a lot about social justice issues and economic you know, justice and racial justice. And um, I've write it, I've been writing quite a bit about um, uh, vaccine equity, uh, COVID vaccine equity, particularly in L.A. County. But that's an issue that's, you know, relevant throughout the state, throughout the country, what the reasons for that are. Um, and so I kind of look at these areas that maybe where people don't always have a voice or I can offer some some nuance to an issue that may or may not be out there um, and look for people to kind of help tell those stories. Um, so that's kind of how, and, and I, while our audience at the LA Times is very much a Southern California audience, I think that there are, you know, ways to tell stories out of Northern California or the Central Valley, you know, or the far North that resonate with, you know, Southern California readers. And so I try to look for ways to do that as well. Um, because I, luckily I have a job that affords me to be able to do that and, and travel to different parts of the state and kind of bring those stories back. 
it seems like there's actually a vacuum in California for news. And I mean, there are a lot of news organizations. Many of them are reeling, obviously. But it seems like the LA Times actually is well situated to be the paper of record for the entire state. Do you feel that as well? Do you ever think about that responsibility or that prospect when you're out reporting? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, I've been with the LA Times now for actually about three years. And from everything that I've been told by people who have been there far longer than me, the, the, the Times has always kind of had a little bit of an identity crisis, kind of like, are we a Southern California paper? Or are we a California paper? Are we a national paper? Or are we an international paper? And, and I think that, that that mission has gone back and forth over the years. I think that with the pandemic, with our you know relatively new owner, with our new executive editor coming in, I think that those questions have taken on a new urgency, uh, not just in terms of what readers we choose to serve, but also in terms of our business. Um, because as you mentioned, you know, the pandemic has not been kind to news organizations, you know, throughout California or throughout local, particularly local news organizations throughout the country. And so I do think we have to decide and kind of pick an audience and, and go forth and, and make money, I guess, so to speak. But I think for me as a columnist, I definitely look at myself as key to helping that mission. I think that I've always wanted to use since moving to LA and, and being a columnist, I've always wanted to use some of the knowledge that I've learned um, in Northern California and some of the, the sources and the people that I know to kind of bring, to kind of create more of a statewide focus on a column. I think that um, the pandemic obviously got in my way a little bit because I wasn't able to travel, but um, I'm hoping as the years, well, months and years, hopefully we start to reopen up, I can do that more often. Um, and so, yes, I do think it's important that we do bring, we have this ability, I think, to kind of be a statewide publication. Now, how we go about that is a different story. That's frankly a little bit above my pay grade. Does that philosophy ever enter how you approach a story or how you report on a story? That idea to tell California's story more broadly and like to be the, if, you know, if the LA Times is the paper of record, then you are the reporter of record, the columnist of record, the writer of record. It does sometimes. I definitely does. I think, you know, I can think of a few columns written during uh, the pandemic about some of the, the states constantly shifting, um, or I would say state, local, county, different regulations on what we can and cannot do as far as going in businesses, wearing masks, you know, that whole thing. And there were, a, there were a number of columns I can think of that I wrote from that perspective. Some of the columns I've written about um, wildfires and particularly like home building, housing policy, um, even things like who could actually fight wildfires. We have like all of these folks that, you know, work for, were incarcerated and work for fire, you know, work for Cal Fire basically, but got out, can't get a full-time job. Like things like that, that I think are statewide issues. I do try to, I think about those in a broader sense. Um, but I think there's also just as many things that I've written that are kind of locally LA County based, um, still as well. So it just, I frankly just depends on the column and what the topic is that I'm picking, but I wouldn't say that I necessarily pick a column because it's going to be statewide and or pick an idea to write about because it's going to be statewide and have that impact. I, I just try to go after what I think are things that are good stories or things that I think are important to be said, um, to make a point, to push central policymakers in one way or another, or just to, to offer nuance to news coverage or issues that are, that everybody's talking about that aren't being discussed. Along the way, what has your work revealed to you about California that you've maybe found most surprising? 
so and I guess I shouldn't be surprised on this, but I, I do think that, you know, coming out of the the election and all of the you know division in the QAnon and all these conspiracy theories, I, I was a little bit surprised to see just how entrenched some of that stuff was in, in parts of California. I mean, some stuff is like I, I'm not surprised, you know, um, or parts of Orange County. That's not really all that surprising. Um, you know, other parts of, you know, the far north, would you know, w- which would be the state of Jefferson. I guess I'm not that surprised. But I think that 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 kind of like the depth of that division uh, was a little bit surprising. I was surprised how many more people in California voted for Trump uh, last last time around. Um, but, you know, I've also been surprised, too, that like that the efforts to address the issues of racial justice and social justice have, you know, in some ways we've kind of gone back to a status quo, but in some ways we haven't. And I'm kind of surprised at how much then how many people are still pushing for these issues and how vocal they still are I and mean, how much that those some of these issues are still resonating um, into the halls of power and policies. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, Oakland deciding not very long ago to not double down and put more police funding. I mean, other cities have done the opposite, but that conversation continued to happen. Um, and just kind of this turmoil that we're still in of like trying to get to this next level. Um, yeah, I think those are some of the things that have surprised me probably the most. Who are some of the Californians you've met or encountered in your work who have really stuck with you? I think that the sheriff of Modoc County that I interviewed early on, um, when I started writing the columns, um, who was for time Modoc was the only county in the state that didn't have any COVID cases. And I went up there and kind of got a tour of the, the county and the city and talking about, you know, well, A, how remote it is and B, you know, the issues that they deal with that are so different than so many other parts of the state. And I mean, there's many ways to look at this guy, but you know, He's, he didn't strike me as very unreasonable or crazy how other people might have painted him out to be. But, you know, he had his very specific views on, on, on very things. But, if, you know, understanding why he has those views, like it made some sense. But that that's a person I, I like when I write about issues of liberal California versus red California. Usually his some of the things he said to me usually pops pops into my mind as far as like rationale and thinking and, you know, understanding why people are the way they are. I think some of the folks I've just interviewed who deal with homeless services, for example, like particularly in L.A. County, that that that's always and it's not one particular person, but it's just the various different agencies and people who represent them and um, who go out into the street, do street outreach and other things. That's really that's really stuck with me. And I would say some of the doctors that I've talked to um, about covid vaccines who are going out and trying to get convince people of color to get vaccinated you know, that they're prescient about what's ha- going to happen two, three months down the road. And they're frustrated when those things come to pass anyway, whether it's, you know, we now we have testing, but it's not going to go in the neighborhoods where it needs and then it doesn't happen. Or we have vaccines and it's not going to get to the people that it needs and then it happens. So, you know, it's those folks. I always like it. It's interesting to talk to them because they're on the ground. They're talking to people. They understand what's happening and they're usually right. And for whatever reason, that doesn't trickle up to the decision makers. That's really interesting because that reminds me of the role that LA plays, LA as a region plays as a bellwether, not just in California, but nationally. And one of the people that you've covered recently that I think really articulates this really well is Holly Mitchell, former state senator and now an LA supervisor. And one of the quotes in her in, that she gave to you when you were reporting on her 
She said, part of my attraction to this job was recognizing the role L.A. County plays, good, bad, or indifferent in the criminal justice system. If we can look at reforms and get it right in L.A., it recognizes not only the impact it has on my home state, but the model for the country. So I absolutely intend to continue this work. End quote. When you hear sources like Holly Mitchell, among others, say things like that, I guess, how does it influence how you do your job and how you think about California or LA more specifically? Yeah. It's interesting because like in some ways I, and I remember her saying that and I, and I was like struck by that because she's right. She's absolutely right. Um, but it makes me think actually of my time in Sacramento because in Sacramento I was on the editorial board and it was, I remember specifically after speaking of law enforcement, after Stefan Clark was shot by Sacramento police and there was a lot of, you know, protests and everything else, which in part prompted this bill to kind of, to, to put some additional reforms in on police departments. And I, and along with a few others wrote a number of editorials supporting these bills and, you know, pushing, you know, state lawmakers to push back on the police unions. And, you know, it was, I think it was during that time that it was really fascinating to me that like I, as a writer, my colleagues could write something that would would, had a good chance of influencing state policy. And when you influence state policy in Sacramento, you have a high chance of influencing state policy nationally. And like that concept of like the ability to have this kind of influence just as a writer sitting in an office is an awesome, awesome responsibility. And so I think of it, LA County in the same way, this concept of what, as um, uh, Supervisor Mitchell has said, is that, you know, what LA County does has a good chance of influencing what Sacramento does, has a good chance of influencing what the nation does, particularly now with um, Colonel Harris being vice president. So I think it's, I think being in this kind of this ecosystem of understanding how, what sways power and what sways policy is, it makes me think, I definitely think about that when I write about issues in people and topics that have that ability to be that, to be visible and to be um, taken into account as elected officials consider um, new laws and new, new regulations and new policies. What is your process for earning trust in some of these communities where you go to report, whether it's Modoc County, which leans pretty far right, pretty Trumpy, pretty press averse, I imagine, or in Echo Park, talking to homeless folks there before the encampments were removed. What would you say to them to reassure them that you are the right person to whom they should entrust their stories to make sure that they are seen and heard by that statewide audience they might not reach otherwise. Well, it's interesting. I think that, you know, the, the red counties are a little bit harder to to get people trust. I mean, I'm a black woman and that's like, that's just what it is. And you're going into a lot of, I'm going into counties where there just aren't a lot of black people. And, you know, from what they've heard, you know, through right wing media for the last year and a half is, you know, some combination of you know, critical race theory and George Floyd, and, you know, whatever it's going, Black Lives Matter is, a, you know, a mob, whatever, whatever the latest story or narrative is of the, of the day. But for me, I will say that, like, frankly, just my fact that I like lived in Indiana for 10 years has helped a lot. And, and a lot of times I own a Jeep. Um, and so that I pull, I mean, I remember Drax actually drove my Jeep because I I'd never driven that it was Modoc County's in the far Northeast corner of the state. And I'd never driven that far north and I decided to take my Jeep because I was like, why not? I have the time to do it. You know, I'll expense the gas, whatever. 
And when I pulled up at the sheriff's department and talked to the sheriff, there's like seven Jeeps in the parking lot because all of the deputies own Jeeps. And so the guy was like, including the sheriff who goes Jeeping up in the hills. And he's like, so that's your Jeep. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what? And like, I told him what it is. I'm like, it's a JK. It's 2017. It's stock this. And he's just like, okay. You know? And he's like talking to me and I'm like, yeah, we're talking about stuff. And he's like, yeah, I lived in Indiana for 10 years. And he's like, oh yeah, my son lives in Southern California. So like you find a baseline, but like, I don't go in assuming that everybody can talk to me, but I have learned in these red counties that the fact that I lived in a Midwestern state in a very red, red Midwestern state. And I grew up in the Midwest is like, key to getting people to talk to me and if I can have a conversation with them. Um, and I think in other parts, it's, it's everything else. It's like, you know, with homeless people, specifically people who are on the street, like they get so many people talking to them or just treating them like they're not human. And so I feel like if you talk to somebody like a human, it usually, particularly people who are used to not being treated that way, it usually gets them to talk to you because they're not used to it. And like, they don't want to be on the outskirts of society, but we treat them that way. And so I think that any, at least in my experience, any opportunity or any effort to bring people into society and make them feel like they're included, like what's your name, you know, what's your pronoun, like things that we would ask anybody else. They're like, that's cool. You asked me this. Like, I think it basically comes down to treating people, meeting people where they are and treating people like you would want to be treated. And I think that those are two big things that have helped me be able to kind of gain trust. And then you know, building on your reputation. Again, I'm a black woman and like there's parts of some counties because I know there's some weird stuff going on. Like I, I'm not going to venture out there by myself, but I'll make some, you know, acquaintances or colleagues or whatever that I've in, on the ground, some elected official, whomever else. And like, I'll be like, take me on a tour. Like, and that's the best way to do it. And so if they introduce me to people, if I convince them that I'm cool, by the time we get out of the car to talk to somebody else, they see that this person I want to talk to sees I'm being brought by this person they trust and they are more likely to talk to me. So it's like little things like that where there's ways to do it, but you have to actually make the effort. You have to go. You can't just like sit in the office or sit, you know, remotely and call people. You actually have to go and you have to make the effort and show your face and, you know, kind of build those sort of reputations over time. I think your reporting on homelessness, uh, particularly in Los Angeles, and you covered it in Sacramento too, um, in both places, but of late, uh, has really drawn that approach into pretty sharp relief. And I'm kind of curious about how you've seen that beat evolve over the years. And if you think homelessness is a problem that can even be solved in California. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I started writing about homelessness. Well, I, I care very much about it. Um, but I, I started writing about it when I moved to Sacramento, mostly because, you know, it's really hard coming into a market that you know nothing about. And you're like, suddenly I'm writing an opinion column. It's like, how am I going to write something about a city? But, you know, housing policy, policy on homelessness for the most part is set at the federal level and it comes down to the state and the county. And so there was a baseline that I could write about that I understood the federal policies that applied in other parts of the country that applied here. Of course, here it's a lot. Everything's been evolved. You know, everything's more complicated and bureaucratic. But I think, you know, being in LA County, which is, you know, the center of homelessness, you really understand how complicated this issue is. I constantly remind myself and believe, like, I, I think in LA County, because LA is so huge, that it's easy to see, to see the problem is this is a LA city problem, or this is a Long Beach problem, or this is a Orange County problem, or this is even like a Venice problem. But from the vantage point of working in Sacramento for, you know, a few years, 
you see the policy problems too. And I, and I do believe that whatever, every time, every year, I mean, how many housing bills have gone and just gone through the shredder as soon as they get into the, into the legislature, how many bills have been killed at the last minute by delegations from different parts of the state, including LA County. I think a big part of the reason is just because lawmakers don't really act, but going beyond that, it's like, because they're not rewarded for doing so. Like there's no reward that you get from voters by saying, yes, I'm going to pass SB 50 so we can put a bunch of housing in your single family neighborhood, even though that's actually what that needs to be done. But there's no reward that comes from that politically. And so until average residents start to be like, we're not going to solve this problem. You, you can't solve this problem by saying, let's solve it, but let's solve it someplace else. It has to be in your neighborhood. Like it has to be this. Everybody has to share this pain, particularly in L.A. Until people believe that and until lawmakers or their elected officials believe that they're not going to be voted out of office for doing that. I don't see how anything changes. But what is interesting is in L.A. in the last couple of years is that homelessness went from a problem that was primarily like on Skid Row and downtown and some pockets like Venice has always had some folks and Hollywood, but it's gone from that to like literally everywhere. And I, I do think that has maybe changed people's perceptions a little bit. I mean, it's made them angry, but I think that's, it's forced them to have to deal with this problem in a new way and maybe try to understand it. And I don't think that most people are not compassionate for people, They but they're fed up. And I can understand that. Like nobody wants to step over human beings when they walk around the corner to go get coffee. But there also has to be an understanding of why we're here. And we're here because we have state policies that have been backed up by locals and locals, you know, not wanting to build more housing and not really want kind of kicking this problem, this can down the road. And it's also here because of years of systemic racism and housing policies. And there's, it's so complicated and it's hard to explain to people that this is, you can be doing all the right things, but this is going to take a problem that's going to take decades to solve if it's going to solve it. So I do think it can be solved, but it's going to take some sort of like Herculean understanding and willingness of policy and a lot, a lot of money <laughs> to do it. And I don't know if we're at that point where people are ready to do that yet. You know, we do read a lot about policy and we read a lot about the legacy and the history of housing policy. However, we don't hear a lot about what homeless folks actually want. Like what is the objective for them? Is it as simple or straightforward as just we want housing? Or is it more complicated than that? Is it about autonomy? Is it about community? Is it about actual shelter? Like to what extent do all of these different interests kind of coalesce for them? And to what extent can California policymakers actually give them that? Or can we all work toward that anyway? You know, the more homeless people we have on our streets, um, the more there's this understandable outrage from house people and other people being like, oh my God, get these people off the streets. Not only because there's people don't want to look at them, but there's also this idea of like, this is a human travesty and people are literally dying on the streets, getting sick, all these reasons. But that drives this push to just warehouse people, like throw them in the shelter, like cots are good enough. doesn't matter where they go. And what gets lost in all of that is the, the humanity or is what I guess the, the academics would call people centered care. Um, and because of the way that our laws and the constitution and the various federal court rulings is, you can't just force somebody into like a warehouse shelter forever. Like that's not, that's not how we run as a country. And so you have to like, not only just 
create places for people to go, but you have to create places for people that that they want to go. Um, and people, any given encampment in the state, act, you know, street outreach workers will tell you, like, it's it's a community. Like, I remember walking around the streets in Sacramento with Sister Libby, who's done outreach there for years, and talking to folks. And she's like, yeah. And talking to people, they're like, yeah, this is the encampment for people that actually go to work. So they have to be up at six and they have to be out. So they don't want people out screaming at 10 o'clock at night because they can't handle that. The tweakers live over on this side, like the other, like, and it was like literally like people segregated themselves into their communities because A, it literally was a community and B, because they wanted to be around people like them and it was easier for them. And so now you have outreach workers in cities, you know, coming in being like, we're going to break up this encampment of people who have lived together and you know that they can walk away from their encampment and somebody's there to watch their stuff. Um, so they don't have to carry it all with them. Or that if somebody's sick, somebody, somebody, their neighbor will know, notice that and like be aware of that. But now you want to break people up and send, you know, half of them 50 miles away to this random hotel for maybe two weeks and then ship them someplace else. Or you want to send these people over here to this shelter that may or may not, you know, somebody might have COVID. None of these things are enticing to people. They're like, well, I could be indoors or and I can catch COVID or I can be indoors and I can lose all my belongings. Like, I mean, like, these are, li- or I don't, I don't have a way to get to my job that I keep. I think to really talk to people about what they actually want, because as LA County has learned after Echo Park and some other places, just putting people in places is not good enough if they don't stay. Cause that's not, to my book, that's not a win. That's just letting people, that's clearing out an area for people to just go someplace else. And the other thing I think that people forget is that people are tend to be homeless around where they used to live. So even if you do ship somebody 50 miles from where they were in their encampment, chances are they'll probably come back because maybe they grew up in that neighborhood. And so it's not like you're really getting rid of people. You're just moving people around and that doesn't solve anything. And it's very expensive to do. And I would hope as we get California, hopefully gets more serious about solving this crisis that it's not just a bunch of people with house, houses talking to other people with houses that we actually like talk to the people on the street about what they actually want and not just assume that because they're homeless, they will take anything we'll give because that's not true. I feel like California is just, you know, swamped right now with climate and with housing and or lack thereof, you know, homelessness, COVID, obviously, um, just racism. I just... You know, it is hard to stay positive sometimes. Do you sense any strides or any kind of bright spots or glimmers of hope uh, in the beats that you cover, the areas of interest that you focus on that people should be paying closer attention to? Yeah, you're right. It is really, there's a lot going on right now in California, well, in the nation, and it is hard to be super positive about all of these things. But I do think that what I usually find are bright spots are people who are trying to do the right thing despite you know the world or the the issues being stacked against them i think about there's this woman that's uh lives in mid-city has been for years has been doing things like taking homeless folks to doctor's appointments and like housing them in her house in some cases and like doing all these like very you know important things but she's like working with the city of la and trying to open some sort of shelter and do you know even though you know, the idea of opening a shelter in LA and get it, buying a building. I mean, that's, those are like pie in the sky ideas. If you ask any most rational people, but she's trying to find a way to do it and it might work. It might not work. I don't know, but she's determined to do that to continue to help homeless people. So I look, I guess I look to people like her and I look to, um, 
you know, the activists that are fighting for what they believe in and, you know, are angry a lot of the times. But I think that you can't deny that they've gotten the ear of some political leaders in ways that haven't existed for decades. And I think that that, those are, those are positive things. I think that there's gotta be nothing more frustrating than like bringing up a problem or an issue year after year after year and never getting an adequate response to it versus bringing up that issue, having people in charge be like, yeah, you're right. And commit to actually doing something. And I think I see a lot more of that than I have since my time here. Um, and that's good to see. I look, I think that that's positive. Um, again, it's not a solution overnight, but I think that it's progress and I'll take progress where I can get it. I feel like we should end there. <laughs> <laughs> I like to end with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian past or present? It's probably gonna be a weird answer, but probably Jerry Brown. Like I, for a couple of reasons, I think, well, one, I miss his Brownisms. just, you know, coming in and He's just so pragmatic about things, but I also, and I don't agree with all of his policies. I, I, you know, I, I'm really annoyed with the fact that he didn't address, you know, some things that have now exploded like housing policy. But I I think about what it must be like to be governor once and institute all these policies that, and then be governor again, and then see what's happened with those policies you've instituted and actually be able to correct your own mistakes in a big way. And you know, the fact that he chose to expend his political capital to do that, I'm thinking with some of the criminal justice stuff, you know, some, of course, some of it with prodding from above, but nonetheless, a lot of it not. Um, I, I don't know. I think that that's kind of honorable. And I think that we, as all people, would want to be in a situation where we could do that. Because I think that, I think people make, particularly elected officials, make decisions all the time with the best of intentions. Um, sometimes not, but Oftentimes, I'm going to choose to give people the benefit of the doubt and say that I think they make it with the best of intentions. And I think we see how they are human and they're short sighted and bureaucracy screws things up. And I think it's really cool to be able to go back and be like, you know what, this was the idea I had. This part of it works. This part of it's a mess and it's made everybody's lives worse. We should fix that because that doesn't happen enough, I think, in our democracy. And I think that that is something that's happened more often. So I, I think just watching him be able to do that, that was actually pretty cool for me. And also I just like, you know, his, like I said, his, his, you asked him a question and his pragmatic answers to things, which in like his brownisms are just hilarious. So I think that's probably why, um, that's, that's, he's the person that comes to mind. There are many, many others, but he's the person that definitely comes to mind. Erica D. Smith from the Los Angeles Times. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was been fun. There you have it. What a blast it was talking to Erica D. Smith. I've been reading her work for a very, very long time, and it's exciting to have her on the show. And if you haven't read Erica's work or seen what she's been up to at the LA Times or before that, the Sacramento Bee, you can check out the show notes. And there are links to her archives as well as specific stories that we referenced in this episode and some other odds and ends that you might find of interest, including our episode one interview with Governor Jerry Brown, Erica's favorite Californian and pretty high up there in my estimation as well. And that is a wrap on episode seven of What is California? This show is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. Follow us there, DM us there. We'd love to hear from you. 
Our Substack newsletter is free at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That gets you the podcast in your inbox every Thursday morning and then a list of weekend reads or links to cool California coverage every Friday. You can support What Is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia if you want to chip in a few shekels to keep our cloud servers functioning, keep our headquarters cat fed. If you ever want to drop me a line, you can email the show at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would be so grateful if you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like What Is California, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find the show. Thank you again so much for listening. I really appreciate it. See you next week. Until then, remember, keep your eye on the bear. Hi, Elsie.